I just went into Squarespace thinking it was going to be a lot uh, bigger and more established, and I'd be walking into a lot more infrastructure. And I realized, oh no, I, did, I still have to build. It was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Welcome to Executive Realness, the show where we learn from the women behind the world's most innovative companies. If you haven't already, make sure you download the Stackworld app today, available on Android and iOS, so that you can be part of the Executive Realness community. My guest today is a secret weapon in the field of marketing. Kinjal Mather is an American businesswoman and the chief marketing officer of Squarespace. She was in Vogue's list of 49 incredible Indian women to watch and blends her knowledge of fashion and tech to act as an advisor to several brands, including Spotify and Sama AI. In this episode, you can expect to learn the importance of choosing who you work for, what goes into the launch of a business, and Kinjal's unique approach to storytelling in marketing. I do hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to welcome you to this exclusive conversation with Kinjal Mather. Kinjil has been the CMO of Squarespace since 2017 and has 20 years of entrepreneurial experience with a decade in fashion and another in tech under her belt. Her previous experience ranges from Saks Fifth Avenue, Neyman Marcus, Condé Nast and Foursquare before joining Squarespace later on in her career. She's been named one of Adweek's top 20 tech-savvy CMOs, driving innovation along with being included in Forbes' CMO Next List. Squarespace, the design-driven platform helping millions of entrepreneurs all over the world build brands and businesses online. Welcome, Kinjil. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to start off learning about your early life. What were you like as baby Kinjil growing up? (laughs) Baby Kinjil growing up. Um, So I don't know myself. I know myself through my mom's stories. And she describes me as... I was an incredibly chill baby. She said I didn't have crazy emotions, which is very surprising to me. Um, I was a self-player, so she could just put me in the corner and I would play. Um, And I think one of the things that she always talks about is how, from a very young age, I, I showed signs of being incredibly independent. And so when she describes all these things, which sound so interesting to me because my baby couldn't be more opposite of this beautiful, wonderful baby she describes. Um, I think I still share a lot of the same qualities as baby Kinjal. And so it makes me happy to hear that how she describes me matches up to how I identify in a lot of ways. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Texas. So um, dad and mom born and raised in India. Dad went to Uganda um, first school and early adult life. And then they came over to the U.S. and settled in Texas because um, it was oil and gas. And he was an engineer and that's what took him there. And so my brother and I were both born and raised in Texas. It felt like a really amazing childhood because it felt really safe being there. That's awesome. And when did you start thinking about work and careers and your first job? Were you like a really early like wanting to work straight away? I think I am a product of of my parents' conditioning. And so I thought about work probably way earlier than I want to admit. Like it was always a conversation in my household of what are you going to be when you grow up? And an education is so important because it, you know, it determines 
what you're going to do for the rest of your life. So very, very young, we were having conversations in my household about work and working and what you wanted to be when you grew up. And I, I mean, grow, I didn't even understand that concept, but I knew you had to work. Did you feel that that now looking back is like being a child of immigrant parents? A hundred percent. People ask me like, you know, what, what is it like that, um, what is it like to be a child of an immigrant? And I'm like, it just feels gritty. Like you just have grit always. Um, you have a work ethic that makes you want to earn your job every single day. I never feel like anything is deserved. I always feel like I have to re-earn it and reprove myself on a daily basis. And so there's pros and cons of it, but the big pro was like, definitely get a solid education because you're going to have to earn your spot in this country. And it's kind of what I was told as an American. There's definitely pros and cons to that, isn't it? Like it can make you so driven, but then always sort of looking over your shoulder and not always being as relaxed in your own body. But we'll come on to that a little bit later. You said education was really, really important to you. Tell me about your schooling and what you studied. Yeah. So I, um, so talking about jobs, um, very typical South Asian, you need to either be like a doctor or a lawyer um, and maybe an engineer, but my dad was an engineer, so he never pushed me into that direction. So I knew I had to go into something in the sciences. I learned how to computer program when I was really young. And so I went into information systems growing up. It's, it's really interesting because I only did it because I was good at it, not because I had some crazy interest in it. And, and that's what was always taught to me too, is just like, know what you're, what you're good at and then go hard in the paint at that. I say that to caveat my whole education to say, it's not a reflection of like what my inherent interests were, but just like what I knew I was good at. What were you interested in? Um, philosophy and art really? and all things that- Creative. Yeah, all the creative fields. I always say it like I took my first philosophy class in freshman year in college. And if I could have just like majored in that and been a seventh year senior, I would have done it. Like it would have been, I would have never left school. I would have just like studied it forever. What school of philosophy is your favorite? Well, there's a lot that I would say. Um, but I don't know. I go back to the um, to Socrates and being a person of questions yeah, um, and intrigue and curiosity more than anything else. That's so true. And like, you still can apply these principles today in your work. All the time in every conversation, I'm like, how do I sit back and ask the most pointed question that I can to get more out of the conversation versus being the one talking. It's like really helped me be a better listener, which I've never been great at, but I keep coming back to that. So talk to me about your first job. Was it an internship? Was it a side hustle at school? What did you do? Your first working role? Okay, so that was in high school. I finally got a driving permit and so I could drive myself to a job, which was an important piece of it. Um, living in Texas, nothing was walkable. Yeah. And it was at the mall and I worked at a candy shop and I was a candy stripe girl. <laughs> Selling chocolate-covered gummy bears and gumballs. Yeah. How did it feel to get your first paycheck? Oh, it felt so good. I, you know, the relationship with money is so weird in an immigrant family um, because 
you want to earn it, but then when you have it, you don't feel like it's yours. You feel like it should be shared with the family. And so, I don't know. I felt like I was like earning my spot in the household. I was like contributing. There was just a lot of points of pride more than anything in getting that first paycheck. Definitely. Yeah. There's also this feeling of autonomy as well. Like, even though you know that you are contributing to a household, you can always buy whatever you want. And for oh, me, I was yeah. like buying magazines and books and loving yeah. it. So did you grow up in the YM world where YM was a big publication? No. Maybe it wasn't a UK what publication. What is YM? Tell me. It was like, I think it stood for young and modern, Ooh, but it was yeah. like targeted right at like a 15-year-old and... I wasted a lot of money buying that print publication, but I love. You're totally right. Like we, buying all the things your parents wouldn't get you. They would never get you. No, our one was Sugar magazine. Okay, so we had a girls' magazine called Sugar. Okay. I bought the first ever edition, and then when I started waitressing at 14, I would take my little 20 pound note and buy the magazine, and it felt really, really yeah. good. Oh, that. So tell me about your first job that was the Kickstarter for the career path that you're on now. Yeah. So. I did information systems and through it, I learned how to, to really build like statistical models and, um, you know, how to apply science to data. And so my first job that like catapulted me into marketing was actually very much from an analytical point of view. And it's how I got into fashion, which is the crazy part of it all. It's not because I loved fashion, which I did even at a young age. It was because I... I knew how to mine through data and like look at consumer behavior, purchasing behavior, start to predict what the purchasing behavior would be doing all through building these statistical models and helping the marketing team that was in place at Neiman Marcus make sense of what was happening in the consumer world. And so I came at it from a very data-driven standpoint. So that was my first job. I was like what was called marketing strategy because I don't think that there was any other name for it at that time, which now is like data science. Mm -hmm. But I entered into the marketing world through the lens of understanding consumer behavior through data pattern recognition. A lot of people who are young and graduating might see that there's this role that they want in their life, but not necessarily know that there are different ways in. And you're in, as you said, was through analytics. Did you anticipate that you would ever jump more to the creative side? No. I never started from a, this is the role that I want and how do I get there? Like, I never... Like thinking of a title or a role or an industry, like it's just not the way I was ever wired. Um, I've always been wired to just like, again, do things I was really good at, get a hard skill and stuff, and then build from there and always say yes to opportunities. Different paths can take you to different places, but I always approached it from what am I good at? What's the opportunity in front of me? Is that exciting? Is it challenging? If it is, like, go for it. Never say no to an opportunity. And then that just helped me build and move into more traditional marketing very unintentionally because it's just the challenges kept pulling me in that direction. But I never, ever start with a where do I want to go and how do I get there? That's just, like, not how my, I'm wired. What do you think it was about you that made you move from being someone in the number crunching room moving to a different side then? Because if you're not plotting and planning it, yeah. someone must have seen something in you. Oh, yeah. What do you think they saw? And who was it? I've had 
honestly, I've had a lot of people that have helped me in my career and I owe my career to, to many mentors and many bosses that have been really good to me. I, I think two things. I think, um, ultimately when you're working for somebody or for a company, you got to always understand that it's a give and take. And so for me, I always prioritize just like making the business money, like being as impactful Mm. as I can for the business that I worked with for and not ever thinking about like, what am I getting out of it? And in it, you're learning and you're growing, but it was always like, how can I impact this business as much as I possibly can? On the bottom line though, as well. On the bottom line. Like, and I think my, all of my, like all of the people that I've worked for have recognized that, that it's like, okay, it's a, she understands that business impact is the number one priority and all the decisions that trickle from there. And so when you get that, people give you opportunities because they're like, you know what to do with it. Um, but I would say that the the second thing that kind of, um, of, of pulled me into it is exactly what you're saying, which is like people seeing, um, seeing potential in me and giving me the opportunity to be like, Hey, look, like this is going to be hard and you're going to be doing two jobs for one, but we have this opportunity over here. So-and-so left, or this is work that's left on the table that needs to be done. Do you want it? Yes or no. And it was a very sacrificial thing that I'm like, yeah, I'll put in the 70 hours that it's going to take to do these two jobs, but let's do it. And so um, it was the recognition of the opportunity by people that I worked for, but then honestly, my willingness to like put in the really hard work to, to take the opportunity too. So you had this career at Neyman Marcus and Sachs and you were at Condé Nast Publishing. What made you want to jump into tech with Squarespace? I loved retail and publishing and retail more so. That's really where I spent a decade um, building the online businesses for these for these really big retail companies. I just remember having moments where I was teaching people about digital channels and about what mobile was and what social was. And, you know, these were all things that were coming up while I was working. They were all new waves, globalization and digital marketing. And the minute that I was flying around from city to city, teaching people about the, you know, the value of collecting an email address, I was like, okay, I should not be teaching at my age. I should be learning. And I want to be on the learning journey and I need to go into something very uncomfortable and I need to go push into something that is building the future and that I can learn from. And I cannot be the one teaching the future because I don't know shit. I'm 30 years old. Like, I don't know anything. And so that's what forced me to go into tech is I was like, I just need to go into something where I'm going to be on the learning end of things rather than the person that's like holding the digital torch um, in these like really established kind of industries like retail publishing. So you left a very traditional retail corporate career to join a 30-person startup. Yeah. That's quite risky. Yeah. How did you decide to do that? I um, I mean, if I'm being totally honest, I was at a point financially where I just thought I had a little bit of a cushion and I could take the risk. I finally was like, I have something that can pay rent in New York and I can take the big leap into startup because there's no time like now. And so I jumped into an art startup because I thought 
the same way that we disrupted fashion over, um, you know, over 10 years of selling nothing online to, you know, selling over 10% of luxury goods online, we could do the same thing in art. And so I thought it was like very applicable. Um, I was excited to build a brand, excited to build a company. Um, and I didn't think about everything else. I, I truly did not think about what it is to work for a founder, what it is to have a board and venture capitalist money. I didn't know. I was so naive to all of that. I was like, oh, like art, fashion, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to disrupt and it's going to be, it's going to be the same thing. This is going to be great. And I took the leap and I, I never look back. I never regret taking that leap, but I learned a lot going to a 30 person startup. What was your biggest lesson? to know the people that you work for. Like, it doesn't matter how great the company is, the challenges, how rewarding you think the work is, like working with really awesome people um, that you trust and you believe um, has the best intentions for their, the team around them, that makes all the difference between a company that's going to succeed and a company that's going to fail. If you are interviewing for a startup, which as you said is like fast paced, very intimate, founder driven, founder led. What can you do to learn more about the team you're going to join before you join? Because it seems like we spend so long thinking about who we're going to hang out with or day, but we don't do the same necessarily for work when actually it's eight hours a day, if not more, that you're spending time with these people. So what steps could you take to get to know them better? Yeah, it's a great question because I actually get asked it on the other side too, where founders are asking me about, hey, I got to hire my head of marketing and I've heard that that's a really scary role. Um, and, you know, people can talk, to talk the talk, but can they walk the walk? I get asked that so much. So I would say on both sides of it, whether you're hiring or whether you're interviewing for it, um, you, you have to actually put in the time and date the person. I say that like very respectfully, like you have to, go to dinner. Also be in all kinds of environments, be in the boardroom environment where you're doing a whiteboarding session on a topic. I've done that before where I'm like, let's brainstorm what a three-year plan would look like. And so you get that real working environment um, kind of experience of like, what would it be like to brainstorm with this person? Go to dinner with them. So you're like, what are they outside of work? What's Because usually what their value system outside of work is what their value system inside of work is too. And so get to know them as a person. I've also done group day where it's like, let's the whole team, let's go out. And so you see the dynamic of the team as well. If you can, and you're not in a situation where you need a job quick, then I would say take the time to not let the interview process be dictated to you, but you influence the interview process and ask for these different types of environments and conversations um, and make sure you're kind of seeing all, all sides of it. I have been in situations where I've done, I don't know, 20 hours of interviewing and I go to the group team dinner at the end. I'm like, let's all get together. And I see the group dynamic and I'm like, I don't care if I put 20 hours into this. If this is what this if this is what it's going to be like, and this is my first team, I don't know if I can do it. And so I've it's just it's really been an amazing weeding out process of where I want to spend my energy and my time based on the people that I'm going to work with and whether it's like jiving or not. But it is re- it is a really tough decision when you've put in a lot of hours into the interview process to walk away. Um, but I think it's worth it versus like two years later realizing that it wasn't a fit.
So talk to me about joining Squarespace. What was that like for you to do the big leap? Was it what you expected straight away from day one? It was much harder than I expected it to be because you join companies at different phases and you have expectations. So I was coming from like at a 30 person startup in art space. Then I went to like, you know, about a 200 person startup at Foursquare. And I was like, okay, this company is 400 people. Like they know what they're doing. (laughs) Like I'm going to have way more support in this bigger company. And I get there and I'm like, oh no, like Size of company does not matter when you're building a function from start. It's all the same problems and so and challenges and also opportunities. And so um, it was I just went into Squarespace thinking it was going to be a lot uh, bigger and more established and I'd be walking into a lot more infrastructure. And I realized, oh, no, I I still have to build and which was so exciting. But It was building a team from scratch, building, you know, a marketing function from scratch, building their first ever marketing budget from scratch. I mean, it was things that you wouldn't expect a company of its size to not have in place. And so it was just, it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. So it's your first hundred days at Squarespace and you're saying that there was no team, no budgets, nothing. What do you do in those first hundred days to make an impact? Well, my experience was um, I had to present to the board in six weeks an entire marketing strategy and plan. Um, And so everybody's not put in that situation. But what I would say is like dive in headfirst and be like, okay, as a marketer, ultimately your responsibility is to manage the money. Marketing is usually the biggest line item on a P&L. Um, It's the one that comes into question the most about what the ROI is on it. And so my advice to any marketer is like understand the money that's flowing out and get it in control. So if people are spending, what are they spending on? Is it the right use of dollars? Cut it off if you don't know what the ROI is. Like immediately just stop the bleed when you come in. Um, If that's not the case and dollars aren't going out the door, then starting to build a plan and saying like, what's the lowest hanging fruit? What's the things that I can do that are low hanging that can make an impact immediately? Like whether it's one channel or two channels, like you don't have to do a whole 10 point marketing plan. Like what are one or two things that you know can return immediately that the company's not doing and get that turned on as quickly as you possibly can. But manage the money. That's like the first thing that you could do that would make an immediate impact and have the CEO, the founder, the CFO, or the board just like take a deep breath of relief to be like, okay, somebody's home, you know, somebody's like watching the money. And they've got it under control. Yeah, exactly. In those first hundred days or the first few months of a new role, particularly when you're coming in at such a senior level, how do you introduce yourself to the various teams and departments or work with your direct reports to build trust and tell them somebody's home. Yeah. So fascinating because I the approach I have now is very different mm-hmm. than the approach I had when I was like first working. Like wh- what I try to do now is I really try to understand like what are the problems people are really, really facing that marketing should be playing a role in solving And you can feel it. You can hear it. You're like, there's a gap and they need it filled and they're excited for you to be there. And you have to assume the good intent of that. Like they are excited for you to be there. So you don't have anything to prove. 
but why are they excited? What is the problem that they're facing that they need marketing to help them solve? And make sure you're hearing it from them and you're realizing like, okay, this is how I'm going to partner with product. This is what product needs for marketing. So it, it really comes from a place of wanting to partner, wanting to help solve problems that are not your own. It's like, what is product missing that marketing can help solve? Um, and I'm picking on product because product's one of my favorite um, teams to collaborate with. But it's that orientation of, of hearing and understanding what people need from you and prioritizing that versus prioritizing like what your own marketing department plan is. You were there when the company went public. Mm-hmm. What was that like? The, the interesting thing about going public that many people don't know is you're actually planning the, the moment of going public years in advance. You start having the conversation of like, we want to go public in two years. What do we need to do? What do our financials need to look like? What's the team we need in place? What's the point of going public? Um, you know, all of that. And so I describe it like a wedding where you've like made the choice you're going to get married and you start planning and you start doing rehearsals. You're, you know, we were doing like mock quarterly earnings calls. I mean, you're doing all the things you would do, all the planning, all the rehearsing. And then the big day comes and you're trying so hard to be present, but it goes really, really fast. And then you wake up the next morning and you're like, okay, we're public. Like what's changed? Like nothing changes. <laughs> it's exactly the same thing. It's all the same earnings. We're still responsible. We're still putting out our great work. We are not letting being public dictate um, our decision making. We're still building a company very responsibly and very intentionally. And we get to look back at the pictures of us on the podium and be like, that was our big day. And that felt really amazing. Um, but we, we haven't changed the way we operate. We still still care about company value and shareholder value like we always have. Their shareholders used to be all and only um, investors and employees, and still it's mainly investors and employees. And so the decision-making hasn't changed from that aspect. One of the things that has been said about you is that you've pioneered a data-informed, not driven approach to marketing. You focus on telling stories of entrepreneurs behind the websites and When you said that nothing's really changed about being a public company CEO, it really actually makes sense because you're always data-driven, but the storytelling aspect is really important for brands. So how do you marry the two? How do you think, okay, my shareholders and investors want to know what the ROI is, but I know that my customers want this heartfelt, honest, authentic approach? Yeah, I think it's really my retail background that serves me well in that, which is like, we are incredibly customer centristic. If you service the customer first and foremost, the dollars in the revenue will come. And I I fundamentally believe that you have a good product. You are creating loyalty and making that connection with your consumers. You serve them well. You, over time, will continue to get their wallet share. That will show up in the revenue. And so, you know, we always talk about it from a marketing standpoint that, um, you know, our job is not just to to get the sale. Our job is to be a true partner with the entrepreneurs. And how do we continue to do that by putting inspirational stories in front of them that help them feel that their problems are not isolated and they have a community of people around them and they can find that community at Squarespace? How do we help them understand that there are tools that can make their life easier? And so we're always doing product innovation to make sure we're staying a step ahead of that. 
Um, how do we ensure that, um, from a marketing standpoint, that um, we're reaching the right customers with the right stories? And so, you know, what, how do we understand media consumption trends so that we're there with the right message at the right time when our consumers need us? And so, you know, I think nothing we do from a data standpoint doesn't stem from truly intrinsically understanding the consumer and their pain points. And when you start from there, you ultimately will drive the business value and results that you need, but you have to stay laser focused on the customer always. One of the things that I've always thought about Squarespace is that it's very much like a New York starter, like a New York company. Yeah. Yeah. Because fundamentally it's creative, it's cool. You look at all of the branding, all of the marketing, it's very cool. Do you think being out of Silicon Valley and out of the West Coast has informed that creativity element and the way that it still feels quite street and gritty and accessible? I definitely, well, one, thanks. Like that's (laughs) the ultimate compliment to say we feel New York because that's really part of our identity. Yes, it does. I I always talk about this um, interesting dynamic that exists in the Valley, which is um, marketing is always seen as a problem solver in Silicon Valley often, which is like you build a product and they will come. And the only time you have to ever spend in marketing is when they stop coming and you need to inject growth. I think the East Coast takes a very different approach, which is like, Ultimately, nothing is a monopoly forever and competitors enter and things get commoditized and the only thing that differentiates is your brand. And so invest in the brand early on, invest in the differentiator, invest in making the connections with the consumers through your brand and marketing. And so I actually, when I met Anthony Castellana, who's our CEO for the first time, and we talked about the opportunity at Squarespace, what I was so excited about was the fact that he fundamentally understood brand as a differentiator. Um, and that allows us to really do interesting things that you don't see coming out of California as much. So, hundred yeah. percent. When I think of the ad campaigns that you've done in the TV spots, I'm like, wow, they're like art films Mm -hmm. and they have like millions of views on Mm -hmm. YouTube. Like Mm -hmm. who would want to watch an ad? But the ads are so great and they're really, really interesting and innovative. Going back to Anthony, what is it like to work with a CEO in your role and what is the dynamic between you two? I would not be there for six years if we didn't have a great working relationship because, you know, she's marketing officer is also chief most out is the acronym on the street (laughs) that people laugh about with marketing. The reason that I'm there and the reason that, um, you know, I continue to work for Anthony is because he, when you work for a CEO founder, the thing that you learn to admire the most is that they are blindly optimistic about the future that they have seen and envisioned and how no matter what the company is going to achieve that. And so he has this vision that every entrepreneur should be empowered to like start their business. So every, but the whole world is going to exist with everybody being an entrepreneur. So everything ladders up to decision-making around um, having that vision come to life. And I think It is so opposite of me. I'm a realist more than anything. And so that balance is what I need to succeed. I need somebody that is just like the blind optimist that's like steering the ship and me figuring out like, you know, which way the wind is blowing. Um, So how, you know, what's, what's the best way to navigate, but somebody that is, um, 
setting, like setting their sights on where we're trying to go and going to get us there no matter what it takes is what you get in a CEO founder. And it's pretty phenomenal to work with. It's really cool because there's a yin and yang dynamic and you need that balance to make things happen because too much optimism and you're high in the sky, too much realism, you never get off the ground. So... Your colleague speaks so highly of you, which I just find absolutely Mm. remarkable in our research. (laughs) They praise your leadership skills. They say how authentic you are. What are some of the biggest leadership lessons that you've learned over the years? I mean, I think the single biggest one is, um, and everybody says it and it sounds so cliche, but I do think you're only as good as your team. So you have to hire really, really well. If you ask probably me or any of my colleagues, um, the thing that I normally am, am spending most of my time doing is talking to people, recruiting people, hiring people, making sure that I'm lining up the best talent possible. So one, I would say like, if you're not spending the majority of your time talking to really awesome talent and building your team, then you're probably doing something wrong um, because that's where you should be spending the majority of your time. But I would say the second thing is like, I learn from my team as much as I hope that they're learning from me. And so I like to surround myself with people that have done more and seen more in areas that I have not. And so I really look at a team dynamic as a true partnership. Like the same way I look at it with consumers, I'm like every, I want to learn from my team. I want them to learn from me, but I want everything to be dialogue and let us learn from each other. That's just another type of culture element that I really try to push on is just how do we make everything an open discussion and hand on heart, like good ideas can come from anywhere. So how do we encourage like that dynamic of people to constantly be injecting good ideas and pitching? Did you always have a confident leadership style? Were you always a confident leader? No. How did you find that confidence? If I'm being really honest, I think we do this really interesting thing as women where, and I was just talking about it with a colleague, where we mull over things for a really long time. And so I play back manager feedback that I got from, I don't know, 15 years ago in my head still to this day. It sits with me. I internalize feedback and uh, I don't know how to let it go. And so I try to be with like every role that I get, I try to be more and more intentional about addressing that feedback head on. Like, I hate to say it, but it comes with it, it comes with time and experience and get and asking for the feedback and, and taking the feedback seriously and, and trying to grow from the feedback. But um, I never, you know, I always get asked questions like, what are your favorite books? And I'm like, I didn't read books. Like, I, you know, I wish I did. It probably would have helped me and served me well. But it's, it, it was like real life, like people that love to work for, with me, but people that hated working for me. And what did I learn from it? That's how it influenced me the most. Has your community been important to you in your career and how did you find them? I was very, very proactive in building community um, early in my career. Like I would seek out anybody that I thought that I could learn from and just like pester them until I got some time with them um, in, in, a, in a polite, you know, and in a polite and respectful way. But now I think um, building community is very different. For me, it's less about myself and it's more about like holding the door open for, for the next gen coming up. And that's community to me now is what I can give back to the community 
versus what I need. And so I try to remain as open as I possibly can. Um, I do this thing on Instagram where like once a quarter, I just like put out there, like, how can I help? And I get flooded with DMs about it. And I set up coffee chats and I try to just give as much advice as I possibly can or like connect people as possibly can or answer as many questions as they possibly can. But now community to me is just like being a part of it and holding the door open for the next gen and being and servicing the community more than anything else. I've seen that a lot of your fans that want to come to the coffee meets and a lot of young women in marketing, they tend to be South Asian also. Yeah. What do you think visibility means to you in your career? Oh, I, I don't think you can be it until you see it. You know, maybe I would have had my sight set on CEO, founder, whatever it is, if I had seen more of it coming up. And so I just didn't really target things because I didn't know the art of possible. Um, so I do think it's really, really important to one, be just a visible figure for people to be like, okay, I can be that. But two, just like giving giving the community permission to not have to go into just the math and science fields and being like, yeah, there's other options to, 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 to pay the bills and still do something that you love. That's not something your parents are pushing you into, you know, it, and, and this one cuts like really deep, which is, you know, in the South Asian community, particularly because there wasn't a lot of women um, that were holding seats around tables, a lot of, uh, the lessons are, how do you be the one? How do you be the one that gets the seat? And so you always grow up thinking there's only space for one. There's only space for one. And I think the most active thing that I'm doing in my seat is to tell people nothing would make me happier than looking around the table and seeing the whole table full of people that look like me. Right. And so finding that intrinsic, like joy out of seeing other South Asian women come up is something I think we all as a community need to work harder on. And so that I'm actively trying to support the South Asian female community think through, which is like, there is more space everywhere and we can take up way more space than we are right now. And, um, and you don't have to think that there's a spot just for you and no one else. And so let's be more supportive of each other. It's really interesting because as you were talking about that visibility, I was thinking, well, that's actually what you do in your campaigns with the entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. It's like you see a full breadth of people who are Squarespace customers and you think, well, if they're an entrepreneur, I can be an entrepreneur. Is that how you approach your campaigns or talk to me through the journey of how you approach what your visual language of Squarespace look and feels like to the customer? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the stories that are told are very, very intentional to your point of telling the stories that are like a, just a little bit off the beaten path. And um, I think that's what differentiates us as a brand is that we don't tell the obvious. We're kind of always looking for what's the untold story that is still relatable, is not so far out there. And that's a fine line to kind of walk. Um, but it's great to hear you play it back and actually take note of it because it's it's truly the insight the team most often looks for. It's just like, what is the entrepreneurial journey to shine a light on that is 
that is unique and different and interesting, but still completely relatable. And like, that's, that's what, what we're built on from a brand. And one of our principles is always we look for the anomalies in the data. And it's almost like those are the anomalies, the stories that are like just outside, but still recognizable. I think it's super cool. Okay, so we've seen the marketing landscape change hugely in the last 20 years, and you've really been at the cusp of every wave of, you said, what are you thinking about now as we move from, you know, we've had like programmatic and traffic-driven advertising, and you've, you know, you've had brand partnerships and huge things like that. What are you thinking about now in terms of the role of marketing in a company? Um, It's fascinating. I mean, I think the role of marketing, because of all these waves that have happened, right? So, um, you know, even if I like look back at my retail experience, like marketing had to had to understand that technology was changing in the world around us. And so consumer behavior was changing as a result. And so how are we going to answer it? So the role that I played a lot was like new tech adoption. Globalization is something that's usually pushed forward by marketing being like, hey, I have all these consumers in all these different markets. We could, you know, triple revenue if we started expanding globally. What would we need to do? What's our go-to-market? And so because we start from consumer trends and what consumers need, it usually helps us be the ones that are pushing um, expansion and product innovation or or new tech adoption. Um, and that's our role within the company. And so I talk about this all the time where I think like the role of marketing has changed from just being like growth, growth, growth. And that's what we're here to do because that's table stakes now. Marketing has truly become like, I think, a very strategic partner to product and to, um, and to finance in terms of what is our expansion opportunities and um, and how do you kind of lay the chessboard out with what moves we'll do next based on what we're good at, what our value proposition is, what consumers identify in our in our brand. And so there's just a real strategic partnership role that marketing plays in the company that has come to fruition because of all the new waves of of tech and media that's happened that's kept us a part of that conversation and leading the conversation often. Um, So it's exciting. It's, It's way more of a strategic role than it's ever been. You talk about internal partnership with different departments, but external partnerships is something that you've done a lot of. We're proud to be a Squarespace partner as well. How do you approach partnerships? Because it's not always about ROI directly, right? What are you thinking about when you choose to work with different brands in order to amplify your mission? Mm-hmm. It's it's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, we always look for brands that, you know, are connected to our mission. And so similar to what you're doing with Stack World, like any brand that is supporting the community in the ways that we want to support the community, we're like, let's do it together. So that's that that always works out. Um the second thing that we do with brands, like big, when we do bigger partnerships. So, you know, when we had a partnership with Madison Square Garden, we're, you know, sponsors of the New York Knicks. Um, it was always saying like, well, we're going to do a partnership with you, but you guys have a lot of resources, way more resources than we do. So how do we do a partnership where we can both like put our resources together to make change um, that may not even be inherent to the partnership. And so, you know, we do things like set aside a, what we call the make it awards fund, where we're going to give loans to businesses that have a tough time 
getting the money to start the businesses with ideas that we think are really good and will shape the community around them. And so it just depends on the partner, but we always try to come from a place of how does it support our mission and does it intrinsically do it because we share community or do we think we both have the resources enough to build community around what we're doing? Um, but it always comes back to supporting the people that we care about the most, which are people on their entrepreneurial journey. Amazing. And then as a last question, what advice would you give to a young woman who's entering marketing today? I say this, and it's kind of the theme of this conversation, but I say this to, to all the, the founders that I talk to that often play the, the first marketing role in their companies, which is you've got to be the customer. Like, you just have to be the customer. Um, you have to know who they are, understand their motivations, their psychographic makeup, what, like, keeps them up at night, what their pain points are. Like, be the customer, and you will never get steered wrong in being the marketer. Thank you so much, Kinjil, for taking the time to sit down with us today. It's been amazing to hear about your career journey, and we'll see you next time. Executive Realness is brought to you by The Stack World, a media and community platform where you can learn from powerful women. Join The Stack World today and build your new peer network with thousands of members who are all looking to grow themselves personally and professionally. Download the Stackworld app now on iOS or Android. You'll find the links in the show notes.